Hi listeners, thank you for your continued support. We really appreciate you. We're wishing everyone a happy winter break, and we want to let you know that the Sausage of Science will be taking a break until January after the current episode. Please join us back in a month for more fabulous episodes brought to you by Chris, Kara, Alex, and myself, and of course the Human Biology Association. Despite what sounds like exuberance in my voice, it's all forced and fake at this point in the semester. <laughs> it's always that way at the beginning of the semester, too. I don't know. I feel like I'm still full of, of like hope and optimism at the beginning of the semester. So. However, you, you start off the semester beaten down from all the grad applications you have right before the semester starts grad oh grant application i'm like what what about grad applications words my brain just Uh, skipped over the appropriate word and just said whatever was there see it's that dissociation i'm feeling from all those steroids uh, i can tell my mouth was moving but i wasn't quite sure what was going to come out of it are you airing up balls so yeah this is what i want to show you so this was like the highlight of my my day yesterday uh, the balls are actually at the other side of the office but i had to blow up hand pump blow up Six dodgeballs, <laughs> because we are playing dodgeball on the very last day of class in the anthropology of sports, and I am fully certain that there will be blood and broken bones. Yeah, dodgeball was a traumatic uh, game when I was a kid. I loved it, and we played it a lot. But man, it was a bully. It was a it was a game for bullies, basically. Yeah, All the kids who were really good at it would catch your ball and get you out, and then hit you in the face with it. One of my students who is like, he's like 6'4", 6'5". He's enormous. And he he's a baseball pitcher is one insanely excited to play dodgeball to the point I'm deeply concerned about the health and well-being of the rest of the students in the class because of his enthusiasm. And then two proceeded to tell me a story about how he was a counselor at summer camp for like eight year old kids. And he played dodgeball in which it was him against 30 year old kid or 38 year old children or i should say eight year you know what i mean 30 kids all around eight years of age and he was just beaming them in the head and he won against 30 kids (laughs) i'm just like oh so that was also part of my job today after i did real work uh was putting together rules (laughs) for dodgeball next week uh and i'm half tempted to put together some sort of like lame waiver because i'm a little concerned about liability yeah, you should at this be. point <laughs> it, i think there's a rule about aiming for the head there are so, so that's included you cannot aim for the head i have also added you cannot aim for the groin because uh, i see that being an issue um i mean we played jeopardy in class like a month ago and i have never seen a more rowdy competitive game of jeopardy in my life i feared for for the safety of everyone in that room Dodgeball, when I was a kid, was a high-stakes uh, gym and, and, and intense. I don't know if the current generation, they feel, I, you know, we, we were just saying we didn't want to do this generation thing before we, we went on. Um, and, and But I, I think the current generation are dodgeball soft. I'm going to say it. I said it. There we go. Take it. 
when I was a kid, we got hit right in the face and cried in school. And I, I don't I don't remember my kids ever even. So I think they're all all um, they're all mamby pambies. So the thing is, is they were all familiar with the movie, which made me happy because I felt like they might be too young for the movie Dodgeball. But, you know, that is a movie where like the opening one of the opening lines describing Dodgeball is as a sport of violence, exclusion and degradation. And I'm worried they're going to take that to heart. Yeah. <laughs> this semester has been just like. I feel like I've dropped so many balls. Um, let's bring it back to dodgeball and sports. I feel like things have been dropped so many that I can't even remember what they are at this point. Me too. And and the thing is, is I do less. I'm doing less this amount I have, but I'm capable of even less than I'm doing, if that makes sense. Yeah. We're talking to Elizabeth Sweet today. Dr. Elizabeth Sweet. So I know that Elizabeth Sweet was a, uh, went to Northwestern. I believe she was trained by Tom McDade. She did studies of cultural continents and success in, in schools. She had a, an article years ago about raggedy shoes, and, and, and they were looking at items uh, for social like success, cultural capital, and it's at the intersection of cognitive anthropology, human biology. But what we're going to be talking to her today is some of her more recent work on consumer debt, which both thrills and <laughs> greatly we're such as... struggles right now. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm in the demographic that she studies, right? So it's one of those things where I'm like, let's talk about debt, but can we talk about it in terms of someone else? Because this is a little too close to home, right? So she sent us a couple of articles. We read a few more recent, uh, but she said the, the, the ones from 2018 might be easier to talk about. Um, one was in social science and medicine, and it's called, quote, like you failed at life, unquote, and neoliberal subjectivity. So I'll just throw out there for our listeners, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this, is, this is one of those things that pains a lot of people. Um, but it, it's not just so-called poor people, right? I mean, I took massive debt to get through grad school and filed bankruptcy uh, when I, like a year after getting my job because we couldn't sell our house and um, have a garnishment on my wages for student loans, right? So this is not just like some marginal structural thing. This is a massive structural thing. and. Mm-hmm. and uh, the internalization of debt morality is is caused me a lot of anguish. And I also imagine within the past two years now, because we're two years into it, debt has only increased a great deal because of COVID. Um, so it's also still highly, highly relevant. Welcome to the Sausage of Science. And we kind of start things off similarly with each episode. And it's to get to know you a little bit better and learn about your journey and how you got into anthropology and decided to pursue it as a career. Yeah, you know, it's funny. My my road into anthropology actually goes way back. So um, to high school, when I was, um, I think a freshman in high school, we did a human ev unit in like my intro bio class or intro ecology or something and i was totally obsessed with lucy (laughs) and i you know went out and read don johansson's book and i was just like really really into it and then obviously i didn't you know go on to do that exactly but i just got really into anthropology and was kind of hooked from there where'd you go to high school i went to westerville south high school in westerville ohio 
Westerville, Ohio. Where's the that? The suburb of Columbus. That's oh. fascinating. Like, I grew up in Michigan, which, as you know, super, super close. And, like, evolution was not talked about oh, in man. high school for me. So <laughs> I always, granted, it was a Catholic school, so that could have been a large part of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but still, and I always find it interesting, the differences in high school education. Yeah. You know, and we, um, I, I will say, I was not a big fan of high school, so much so that I graduated a year early, sort of just to get out of there. <laughs> um, but we did, and I was very lucky in this, we did have a very strong science program and just yeah. some fantastic teachers, like really, really good. Um, and they did, um, I forget what they called it. It was basically this sort of local um like local biology and wildlife kind of extracurricular program that i did the whole time i was there so i, I studied herpetology and we we tracked snakes and like did some work for the state to get them on the endangered species list and like rattlesnakes we did really cool stuff that is cool um for high school um yeah so it was i was very lucky in that respect i mean so I, I, didn't, I didn't know anything about like i didn't know what biocultural anthropology was until you know i got to grad school um, and it was really like, so after um, college, and even in, in college, we didn't have a bioanth program. It was, I went to a small liberal arts college and, you know, I just kind of studied cultural anthropology there. And then I was working at Children's Hospital in Chicago and got really into issues of public health and realized there was all this overlap and, you know, discovered biocultural anthropology. And that was how I ended up, you know, where I ended up in anthro. So I, I I was curious where you're from because I'm my mom's a sweet. I'm curious oh, really? if you yeah my grandmother is a sweet grandma sweet. Um, so I'm curious. I was just curious as to where you're from and if we're uh, if there's a sweet clan somewhere. It's not a, it's not a super common name. So it's not. Although uh, I think as you discovered, there are two Elizabeth sweets at UMass Boston. Yeah, and there are three Elizabeth sweets that pop up right away when I Google. And it gets very confusing very quickly. Sorry. It is confusing. Fortunately, I know what you look like. I, I did second guess myself a lot. Yeah. And we're not completely dissimilar in some of the stuff that we. we <laughs> not. Your work could totally fit within urban planning in so I many know. ways. And actually, when I invited Social you. Social inequalities and, and child development yeah. with the one in San Jose. Yeah. And the funny thing is, is that when I invited you, um, like Chris sent me a text message like five minutes later. He's like, "Uh oh, I think you invited the wrong Elizabeth Sweet." I'm like, "No, I'm really certain I did." Like there was this back and forth of panic of like, "Who the hell did I invite then?" Um, it all worked out. <laughs> there, there was this just like, "Oh God, what have we done?" <laughs> so let's talk about some of your early work. Uh, so you went to Northwestern, and and some of your earlier work was looking at school age kids. Uh, and their employment of cultural capital and navigating their cultural domains. Um, and then for the past decade, you've shifted a bit to the impacts of consumer and student loans and just kind of debt in general on well-being. And so tell us how you got from point A, which we're going to say is, you know, school-age kids and cultural capital, to point B, which is now where you're you're looking at debt and health. Yeah, um, I mean, they're definitely related and, and one in a way kind of came from the other. Um, you know, when I was doing that, my dissertation project, one of the things that I found was that, you know, there was this sort of um, status incongruity thing where uh, kids who were conforming to their cultural norm of status, which 
in this particular context, as I found, involved a lot of status consumption or, you know, consuming status items and status goods. Those kids, if they were coming from families that were particularly lower SES, were the ones that were um, having the biggest impact on their biology and their health. So they had the highest um, blood pressure and um, seemed the most stressed out. You know, again, at the time, I kind of rolled with a status incongruity type of explanation, but always, you know, considered, of course, that one of the things going on there could simply be financial strain from trying to consume a lot of status goods without the material resources to support it. And then, you know, fast forward and I'm in my first, you know, faculty position of my first job. And I remember sitting in my office one day and I'd probably just gotten like my credit card bill and was like, oh my God, you know, <laughs> like the amount of debt that I've racked up getting to this point and like feeling really stressed out about it and thinking, man, how many years is this taking off my life? You know, stressing about this and thinking, wait a minute, I, I kind of study this kind of thing for a living. How many years is this taking off my life? And I started looking into it um, and, and discovered that there was shockingly little research on debt which, you know, as, as somebody who had, who had really been diving into all of the literature on socioeconomic status and, and health and health inequity, um, I really found surprising that this kind of obvious component seemed to be missing. Yeah, no, I, I think it's, I mean, I embody the work that you're doing, right? So I'll, I'll, I'll just put it out there because it's the easiest way. Usually when we're talking about social inequalities, we're in a position of privilege, and certainly I still am, right? Have uh, triplets when I was in grad school, took out all the loans, and I was already in debt from taking out all the loans before that. Um, so that when I took this job, um, we, were, we, we had bought a house with our student loan money on the bubble to try to not lose it all. And so we lost it all. Oh. Our house, we lost everything. So I have uh, 18-year-old triplet boys who, who've gone off to college. So it's a it's a success story, right? But um, if I had not managed to, I don't know, I almost got over, right? Because we lost our house, we filed for bankruptcy, my wages are still being garnished, um, been to court multiple times over student loan things. And I'm a white dude and a full professor. So take my situation and apply to anyone else out there and and the question becomes um what are the health implications of the guilt about my debt and then the health implications of debt more generally i mean that's such a um there are so many things wrapped up in the story that you just told you know about i mean number one um the fact that we live in a political economic reality that makes stuff like this happen, right? Um, the fact that there is still this level of, of privilege involved in it, and I was thinking exactly the same thing, right? When I'm I'm sitting in my cushy office, and you know, in my first faculty position, stressing about my debt, and I'm thinking, wait a minute, like you know, I get to just pay off my debt over time eventually without any negative consequences to me. What if I did not have this job? What if you know, I mean, there are a million things that could go along with that. What if I hadn't had a level of financial and social support through graduate school that, you know, 
made the situation even worse for me. I mean, there's, you know, like, yeah, like you're saying, there's a lot of issues of privilege and, and disparity involved in that. Um, but yeah, I mean, the guilt and the fact that we do so much as a society, we do so much kind of moralizing around this um, and, and criticizing and that just the fact that we have this incongruity between our kind of moral standard around indebtedness and our political economic reality that forces us into indebtedness <laughs> is so problematic because it means that a lot of us are, are walking around feeling bad about a situation that we were forced into and not just feeling bad but feeling like complete failures you know and that was the thing um, more than anything else that, that I found with the work that I've been doing the research I've been doing for the past decade is that level of, of guilt and that you know again the way this was kind of getting portrayed to the degree that it's talked about at all or was being talked about at all in the literature was like well it's stress right being in debt is stressful um and it's like well no shit you know like yeah <laughs> you know but it's not just stressful i mean there's a difference between being stressed out and feeling like you are a complete personal failure at life that you're a moral failure that you're a bad person you know and that was that was what people were expressing. Like, I feel like I am a bad person. I've done something bad, and that weighs on them. Uh, mm. and that was the thing, I think, more than anything else, that ended up then being associated with worse health outcomes. You know, impacting weight, impacting blood pressure, impacting you know self-reported health symptoms, all kinds of stuff. So I. To me, it's like that's where, you know, the real kind of, I mean, there are, there are all kinds of policy things that we could talk about in terms of like debt and that kind of political economic situation. But, you know, the other kind of side of this is that we need to acknowledge that this is a much bigger issue um, in terms of the kinds of emotional states that people are being put into mm -hmm. by this broader constellation of cultural and political economic structures. Yeah, so let's dig into to those health implications a little bit more. And so one of the uh, publications, a very recent one that you sent us was Social Inequalities, Debt and the Health in the United States. Uh, and you looked at a combined sample of about 40,000 people, which is a nice, nice sample size. Uh, that's the kind of thing anthropologists get really excited about uh, regarding debt and health outcomes. And so how do debt and education interact? And then what is that influence on health? So you mentioned weight and blood pressure, but maybe you could kind of go into a little bit more detail of, of some of the serious health implications that you're seeing. Yeah. Um, so with with that paper that you just mentioned, um, with the with the large sample size, that was using data from the Ad Health study, the National Longitudinal Study of Adolescent Health, which which now is is following no longer adolescents but middle aged folks. Um, and um, it's a great data set uh, with publicly available data. So if you know anybody's out there looking for good data to use there's some fabulous stuff in there and they do have some biomarkers available too um, i was very lucky in um, working with that data to have a colleague gary jitnandy who is a real expert in 
quantitative methods for longitudinal data and worked all kinds of um, you know, very appropriate statistical magic, you know, to me, things that I don't know how to do, like marginal structural models to, you know, properly account for everything. Um, but um, basically, we were able to show that, you know, there are health inequalities out there. And you know, one of the ways that health is inequitably distributed is along educational lines. So folks with lower educational attainment have generally worse health outcomes. And we found essentially that um, debt or the kind of relative debt to wealth ratio or, or debt to income ratio that somebody has um, seems to at least partially mediate that association. Um, so, it, you know, again, I think the, the real kind of upshot there is I, I think that we need just a lot more research on this in terms of investigating debt, not only as a, a social and economic determinant of health in and of itself, but investigating its role in other kinds of health inequalities. Um, certainly, I think we need to start, and this is one of the things I'm um, hoping to do in the future, is start looking at this with respect to racial disparities as well, because there are some pretty major um, disparities around credit and debt in, across race and ethnicity. Um, you know, we're all kind of aware of, you know, discrimination in the mortgage industry, um, but it, it extends across the board that uh, people of color are less likely to be approved for loans. They get um, worse loan terms, so they get higher interest rates, they get uh, higher fees. Um, that goes along with a, a whole other set of discriminatory practices around predatory lending and payday loans and you know that kind of stuff um, that we can talk about too. Um, but yeah, I think I think that's one of the things that we just need a lot more work on. And the other thing that we need more work on is you know as you were saying the kind of the health outcomes. Um, a lot of the work that's there, and it's it's great work, but it's it's mostly looking at um, psychological outcomes. So especially depression, um, as, you know, some on different types of measures of stress or anxiety, and and I've used those measures as well because those are really helpful measures, and they're they're definitely very important health outcomes in and of themselves. But you know, I'm a bioanthropologist, and I also really care about the biology, and um, so that was one of the things that I wanted to try to push with my work too was bringing in more biology. And so, you know, in my study, I measured, you know, we did some anthropometrics, we we looked at body composition, we looked at um, blood pressure, we got blood spots, and we looked at CRP. Um, you know, and we were able to show that those are really important outcomes for looking at debt as well, um, especially with respect to uh, payday loans, um, which is, you know, a really problematic, predatory um, type of credit um, that was significantly associated with higher CRP. You know, that's really indicative of some early cardiovascular risk, higher mm. inflammation. Um, so, you know, I think bringing in those kinds of physical health and biological health markers is really important to this work as well. How would that work? I'm just thinking of CRP as an inflammatory marker. So C-reactive protein for listeners not familiar and and thinking through and, and again, this this is very personal for me. So I try to I try to put it at a distance. But if I'm thinking about the role of of debt here, uh, a lot of it is just this 
this desperation and feeling like uh, you, you know you take out a loan hoping you can pay it off, knowing that you you may not be able to, and then it's this sort of um, flight toward either solvency, you know, earning money to be able to pay it back, or uh, just hoping something, hoping something happens that will save you before it, it comes due, right? And the internalization of guilt is not that you're in debt, it's that we've been raised to believe that we should not be in debt, but then the only opportunities that are out there to become socially mobile in a without spending 12 years going to grad school, which also has its own debt, right? So we can, it's the internalization of that guilt that you're doing something that you're not supposed to be doing. So I wonder from a sort of cultural side, like what is, before we even get there, like what is happening that people are feeling so shitty about going into debt? Like what is the cultural nut that we're, we need to sort of unpack? that makes sense yeah it does and i think i mean i you know as anthropologists i'm sure we've all read graber right so we know that this kind of guilt and stuff goes way back to a degree right that there's always been a um some level of kind of moralizing around issues of debt there's always carried some moral baggage with it um but i also think that in particular the context of contemporary neoliberal culture, right? mm. you know, and again, neoliberalism is, you know, one of those things that is both cultural and, you know, policy. It's, mm -hmm. it's political economy and it's the world that we live in um, to the degree that everything has become neoliberalized. And that carries with it this just intense um, emphasis on and and moralizing around personal responsibility and so to me that's where i think a lot of the problem lies right now is that we you know are still trapped in you know the kind of thatcher ism of there is no society right that um we don't we don't have social responsibility that we only have individual responsibility and we're mm. completely responsible for our own everything which is just not healthy in a lot of ways. And I think that that's a big part of the problem. Um, I think getting rid of that though is gonna, you know, obviously that's a pretty big <laughs> ask. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's that it's that early socialization that, that just, uh, so so those listeners who are, aren't familiar with Graeber, David Graeber's Death, The First 5,000 Years is a cultural anthropology book. I, I'll have to be honest, I never finished it. Uh, but the first chapter I've read two or three times because it assuages my guilt. It really talks about the construction of debt as a cultural product and how it's it's used by moneylenders to basically create an industry. So it, it really makes sense, mm -hmm. right? Like we're seeing exactly what we would expect to see under those circumstances. Um, and I guess so, so but, but you're right, anthropology hasn't, we haven't really looked at this yet, and and I wonder if it's it has something to do with the the connection between the 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 health outcome measures and what's going on. Like, so you said you've looked at some of the psychological measures, and then you looked at CRP. Can we do we have enough fidelity in our mech, in our um, our measurement 
on human biology resources to make the connection between health outcomes and this huge, this, this, basically this economic and cultural structure that inculcates guilt and debt. Mm-hmm. It seems like we can do it in other areas. So the question is, are, have we just not done it here or is it harder? Right. Yeah, no, it's a good question. And that's, I mean, that's honestly one of the things, uh, I mean, you know, this project has um, brought up so many <laughs> new questions for me in terms of future research, but that's one of the things that I've really wanted to pursue is, you know, can we do a better job of operationalizing these aspects of neoliberalism um, as a phenomenon that we can link more directly to health outcomes? I think that that needs to be done. I think that you, I think you're exactly right. You know, I mean, and another thing that that I've wanted to be able to do is to try to look at this question in other kinds of cultural contexts too, right? Um, which is hard. It's hard to find. <laughs> yeah, right. I, it was. It's also you know part of the the problem here is you can't really run a controlled trial. Right. Like you can't just like well group B. I'm going to put you into massive debt and see what happens to you. Mm-hmm. And so maybe if you could, I'm going to ask you to opine and project into the future of kind of what do we need to do to to kind of come up with the causal pathways in a situation in which we cannot experimentally control. Um, and, and all we can really do is look for correlations and associations. Yeah, no, and it's tough. And this is something that I've been thinking about a lot, especially with respect to the the payday loans. So that, um, that paper, um, from a couple years ago showing that payday loans were associated with worse health outcomes, um, got some attention from, uh, consumer advocates and some of the consumer advocacy groups and, um, that was really, really interesting to me to begin speaking with that world of kind of policy stuff um, for a number of reasons, but in part because of sort of exactly what you're saying, that if you are talking about um, trying to impact policy, you need data that's not just like, oh, well, it suggests, (laughs) right? You need data that is going to stand up to that kind of criticism. Um, and so there was, you know, I was feeling a lot of pressure to, you know, like, okay, but you need to, you know, we need this from you as a researcher, which is actually really helpful for me to think along those lines, not just mm. what it would be interesting, but what is actually necessary um, to try to have this impact some kind of change. Um, and so that's exactly right. And, you know, I think one of the things is doing more longitudinal work so you can track those things over time obviously important and that's going to take time. Um, another thing is trying to find some kind of natural experiment. So like one thing that I think is interesting, especially with respect to payday loans, which, you know, just if, if anybody doesn't know what a payday loan is, so this is, um, a short term high interest loan. So these are, um, usually pretty small in their amount, like a couple hundred dollars, maybe $400 at the most. And um, you take out the loan usually for a very short, like two week period. And then um, the, the tricky thing about them is you, you have to pay it back in its entirety at the end of the loan period. So you can't do a partial repayment. You can't pay it off over time. You have to pay back the full amount that you borrowed. And if you can't pay it back, then it rolls over. And when it rolls over, um, you accumulate all kinds of fees and the interest compounds 
And so um, if this is you know, completely unregulated uh, and there's no check on how many times it can roll over or how the interest compounds, you can end up paying like 400% interest you know, or the equivalent of 400% APR um, interest on one of these loans and end up owing thousands of dollars on what was a $200 loan. So it's obviously um, totally predatory, totally horrible, and um, to make it even worse, they um, payday lenders um, target low-income minority borrowers. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of this happens online, obviously today, but um, prior to, to online, this was you know in low-income or minority neighborhoods. You, that's where you will see payday lenders, and that's still true today in places where you can have storefront payday lenders. They tend to be in low-income or minority neighborhoods. But you also will see um, situations where mainstream banks will um, have their own, they will basically own or fund these some of these payday lending operations, and they will replace mainstream banking facilities with these in low-income and minority neighborhoods. So they really, really target um, these customers. And even in some mainstream banks, uh, they will offer the equivalent of payday loans through the bank, but they will um, target minority or lower-income customers for these loans. So there's all kinds of discriminatory stuff going on here. Um, but the thing with these is that they're regulated on a state-by-state -state basis. And so there are differences across states in terms of how much of a problem they can be. So here in Massachusetts, they're essentially illegal. Uh, we still had people in our sample who had them because they were able to find them online. Um, but, um, and that, you know, the whole online world is just kind of opens up a, another um, problem in terms of how to regulate those. Um, but there is still a big difference across states in terms of how accessible they are um, and how many times, so some states cap the number of times they can be rolled over, um, some states cap um, the, just the interest rate um, in general, um, or the amount that can be borrowed, so there's, there's a kind of range of different regulatory frameworks around this. Um, and some places like, uh, like Ohio, where I grew up, um, at least up until last year, where I think they did finally pass some legislation to try to get on top of this, but they were among the worst. I think they're average interest rate for one of these loans was like 600%. I mean, it's just crazy. Um, but, you know, so the, all of this to say there are some opportunities to do a kind of natural experiment there in terms of looking at some of these differences and in, in how things are regulated across states in terms of, you know, both health outcomes, but also in terms of how, how does that then make people feel? So the holidays has got to make this worse for people. Is there, is there an effect to that? On the holidays, yeah, yeah, that's sure there is. I don't have data on it, but yeah. I, I was just thinking, like now's the time of year when people are like, "Oh, you should do another article about fire," because I study fire relaxation and Christmas. Like, I could see uh, an article coming out like, "Oh, need money for Christmas? Don't go to one of those things. It can make you actually a lot worse off." So, right, right. Your article may be a little less cheery, but definitely topically relevant yeah well and, and again i think you know the thing that um when even when i started doing this work i was a little bit fearful that the way that this would you know get kind of translated 
into, you know, the, the you know, the kind of popular world is, you know, debt is, debt is bad, debt is bad for you, that it would contribute to this kind of moralizing mm -hmm. of it, right? Mm -hmm. That debt is only bad. And, you know, I think the real thing here is it's not, you know, again, we've created a situation where people need to go into debt to yeah. pay for their groceries, to pay for their house, to pay for their school, to live. That is number one problem, right? You should not have to go into debt to afford basic necessities of life. Um, but number two, if you do live in that world, which we do, then it should not be a problem to be in debt. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? So the problem isn't, it's not that debt is bad for you. It's that the societal- It's the fucking moral around baggage around it yeah. that makes people feel like shit. It, it, I want to throw this out there because when I was going through my ennui about it, this uh, we happened to have elected this douchebag as president, and we had just had a president who basically became president by l leveraging debt. That's what he did, mm -hmm. right? Trump is a debt leverager. That's what real estate brokers do. They move debt around. Right. No compunction whatsoever. The rest of us feel guilty. I'm getting on a soapbox now because I'm mad. <laughs> but 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 your point is is well taken, and that that's what I took away from it. It's not that we we shouldn't be able to use debt. It's that we are privileging some people for using debt and praising them, yep. and we are pillaring poor people for being in debt because they're not using it as effectively. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. I consider my use of debt to have been effective right my family does not agree because they have internalized the guilt and and still feel shame over us having vaulted into the middle class by student loans mm -hmm. um, but i think it's an important topic and i think that there are a thousand more studies that need to be done um and so you need some help <laughs> i do i do yeah that would be great <laughs> <laughs> Are you looking for students or anything? I, yeah, I mean, so um, UMass does not currently have a grad program um, outside of archaeology. Um, so I've been really lucky to work with some some wonderful postdocs um, that helped me with this work while um, while my, my grant was ongoing. Um, and maybe when I get something up and running again, I'll, I'll be looking for that kind of kind of growth in the area. And then we might be starting a new um, public anthropology graduate mm. program at UMass. Very nice. cool. Um, which would be very exciting, um, in which case I would I would love to develop. So on top of that and looking for whatever help you can get, what projects do you have coming up that you're working towards? Are you including anything with, with COVID-19? Because I'm sure debt has gone through the roof in these past two years. Yeah, so that was something um, I, I did um, submit a grant proposal to do a project looking at um, COVID and debt related issues um, with some colleagues that unfortunately hasn't been funded. Um, so uh, I'm still looking towards the future in terms of what exactly is going to happen. Um, I it's kind of in the midst of like right around the time that, that my project was wrapping up, I had a kid and so I've just, and then, you know, COVID. And so I've, I've been kind of, congratulations. Thanks. <laughs> so I've been kind of putting that on hold while I, while I 
parent <laughs> for a couple of years. But I, but now now that she's two, I'm starting to to think towards those next things a little bit more. So hopefully soon. Pandemic baby, huh? Yeah, I know. So she was um, what four months old when when the world collapsed and hmm. so she had like little tastes of you know being outside and then <laughs> <laughs> but now she's she's starting to to come out of it what is this <laughs> what is this air thing that we got going on here Wait, there are other people i don't understand <laughs> what's 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 going on with the mouth region i don't understand <laughs> and what's hilarious is she loves wearing her mask <laughs> I got her one when she was still like a year and a half thinking, okay, she'll probably have to wear this eventually. And because she sees us wear them all the time, she's like, you know, I need my mask every time we go anywhere. She's like, Aww. I know. <laughs> Good on her. Well, Elizabeth, it's been a pleasure. Likewise, thank you for, for chatting with me. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, we really enjoyed it. And my nephew, I think, was maybe born a few months before your kid and he's not so good with the math. <laughs> so quite interesting. You know, it just comes, it's a kid. Like, yeah. you know, it's going to come off and be played with. It's a toy at that point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>